0: Two Barclays Analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Welcome to another episode of The Flipside, Barclays' podcast series of debates on issues that matter to the global economy. I'm Marvin Barth, head of FX and EM Macro Strategy at Barclays, and today I'm joined again by my colleague, Fabrice Montagnier, Chief UK Economist for Barclays. Hello, everybody. Hello, Marvin. Fabrice, when we last met on the flip side in episode five, a little more than a year ago, we debated the merits of Brexit, and you forced me to concede that the odds were indeed stacked against Brexit making the UK better off. But I would argue that recent developments, perhaps purely by luck, Uh, have actually put the UK in a much more favorable situation. And that while I'm sure it will be a rocky road to get there, I think actually in the long run, the UK may actually thrive under Brexit.
1: Marvin, you must be grasping at straws to rely on luck to support your previous (laughs) arguments. The UK economy, in my view, is weaker today, as is the global and regional backdrop, by the way. Trade tensions and national populist movements are still threatening. And now we appear to have increasing geopolitical tensions. So how is this a lucky time for Brexit?
0: Well, Fabrice, I think three things have moved in the UK's favour. First, the world is shifting away from complex multilateral trade agreements towards more bilateral agreements. Second, I think the UK's relative negotiating position has improved, in part based on some of the negatives you just mentioned. You know, the geopolitical instability increases the value to Europe of the UK's stronger defense and intelligence capabilities. Um, also, the weaker economic uh, backdrop. Makes uh, the EU less willing to risk a a bad brexit Uh, And the UK now has a large ideologically aligned majority government with a five-year mandate While the EU governments have been more fractured by the politics of rage those populist movements that you just mentioned third And finally, technology uh, has been shifting in a, a way that's changing the modes of production globally from outsourced globalized supply chains to local automated ones that benefit technology leaders like the UK.
1: I disagree with some of your statements, Marvin. First, the shift in focus from multilateral to bilateral trade deals predates our last discussion. So what has changed for you here? Second, I fail to see how that is an advantage for the UK. In theory, yes, countries could better tailor agreements to their needs through bilateral deals. But how does that work in practice? I think that in practice, every trade agreement inevitably constrain your relationship with other countries. Let me take an example here. There is a clause in the new USMCA agreements or the new NAFTA that virtually prevents Canada to strike a deal with China for instance and in the in the in the European Canada trade agreement there is also a most favored nation clause that is disincentive for both parties to pursue
0: more interesting deals elsewhere Fabrice I agree that the shift in trade negotiating environment took place earlier What's changed is the UK government's approach. When Theresa May was Prime Minister, she prioritized a big deal with the EU. Prime Minister Johnson appears to be playing a longer term game focused on iterative sectoral bilateral agreements. You can see this in his insistence on not extending the transition agreement. There's just no time to achieve anything more than a bare bones agreement in a few sectors. Now, that's almost certainly going to mean more short-term pain. Um, but a sequence of bilateral deals where the UK is focused on its own competitive advantages in negotiations with multiple trade partners can open up a whole new range of opportunities for the UK in a way that it simply could not while it was a member of the European Union.
1: That strikes me as a fantasy, Marvin. <laughs> Trade agreements generally exclude services, uh, but the UK's greatest comparative advantage arguably is financial services that won't be covered by any of the bilateral trade agreements you fantasize about. Even if the UK restricts itself to a sequence of less ambitious, uh, even even though sectoral-based deals such as in goods for instance, it will be difficult, even if impossible, to get workable, overlapping agreements with multiple partners. Take the example of uh, agriculture. The, the UK will be very keen to agree on mutual recognition of sanitary and phytosanitary standards. F- a phytosanitary? Can you please define that for me, Fabrice? Yeah, it's food. But we have to prepare the audience for the kind of jargon we'll be exposed Fair to in, in, in 2020. So SPS requirements uh, needs to be in there. Anyway, as I was saying, mutual recognition uh, on food and agri-food with, with the EU would be a substantial European concession. But it would shut down, almost certainly, a deal with the U.S. It's as simple as that. Similarly, a technology deal with the U.S. would uh, almost certainly shut down uh, a deal between the U.K. and China, for instance.
0: Okay, I didn't say that this was going to be costless, Febreze, um but I do think not think it's a fantasy, and I think you have to acknowledge the reality that it would be nearly impossible, uh, especially in the current environment, for the EU to negotiate simultaneous deals with the US, China, or even the the whole of the Commonwealth. More to my point, even if they did, they wouldn't be tailoring those deals to the UK's comparative advantages. But this is something that the UK can do. And if it's focused on narrow sector-specific deals that are a bit less ambitious, it helps get around the most favored nation status issue that you you raised, which I do think is an important one. I would also uh, acknowledge to you that this isn't going to be easy. You know, how do you choose how to sequence these uh, Negotiations with all these different uh, partners. Who comes first? Who comes next? To optimize that for the UK. And remember, the UK is doing this, um, uh, negotiating trade deals for the first time in decades, given that the EU and before that the European Economic uh, Community were doing all the negotiations before.
1: Fair enough. Um, Marvin, if you agree, let's turn to another point, though, uh, which is UK's negotiation position and whether it has improved or not. Uh, So I would agree that UK's negotiating position is probably less desperate than some might think. But not because of circumstances. Rather, I think uh, because the European Union has allowed uh, to to run those uh, negotiations over a short period of time and cover a wide range of uh, of areas. I think that improves the odds for a win-win outcome. Uh, in particular, and you you would certainly agree with with me on that. But the inclusion of defense and security, foreign affairs, climate change, even fishery may play in UK's favour.
0: Okay, so. I'm glad to see that you agree with me that the UK is better positioned for these negotiations than, say, the consensus seems to think, Fabrice. Um, but I don't understand how you can deny that this is due to a change in circumstances. You know, the, these issues you raise, uh, defense, security, fisheries, those have always been valuable negotiating uh, chits for the UK. What's really changed here is that the EU sees that it can't bully the UK uh, anymore because first of all, there's a much more politically united uh, government in Westminster. Second, the world has clearly become a more dangerous place, making those U.K. security capabilities more valuable to, to Europe. And with the European economy less resilient uh, than in 2017, it can less af- afford a bad Brexit.
1: Marvin, you seem to forget, though, that trade negotiations will first take place at the European Commission level. It may not require member state ratification. So if you count on country divisions within the bloc, think again. And the European Commission is a formidable negotiator. They basically do that for breakfast, <laughs> while they, they, we have to admit that the UK government on the other side is still soul-searching on this one.
0: Okay, Fabrice. For, for the EU has been remarkably united in giving the Commission the lead and their talking points have been the same but the Commission ultimately has to reflect the desires of the member states and there was a very clear change in tone from European leaders the day after the UK election in my view a recognition that they faced a more formidable negotiating partner themselves and one that they cannot afford to turn into an adversary you know the day afterwards Germany Chancellor Merkel and French President Macron were both publicly saying they could not uh, countenance a competitor, an unfair competitor, at their doorstep. That's
1: a fair point. But let's leave it there for now, if you agree, and tackle our final point, um, which is UK's benefits uh, from technological progress towards localization and away from globalization. Uh, So, even if we start by accepting your thesis that the world is going in that direction, it seems to require two key assumptions. First, the UK has a a relative advantage in that world. And second, that this advantage is facilitated by Brexit rather than undermined by it. So let's start with the first one here. What is in your view UK's relative advantage in this world? Is it, you know, fintech or anything else you see?
0: No, I, I don't think it's just about FinTech, um, but you know, it's worth pointing out that uh, um, uh, they are doing very well, well there. Just look at the cross-border success of a firm like TransferWise, illustrating how uh, these new technologies are actually erasing those old borders that necessitated the need for trade and services agreements.
1: So, so UK may be a, a FinTech leader, fair enough. Uh, um. And that technology, uh, as you put it, reduces the needs of trade and service agreements. Uh, but that doesn't make UK a technology leader in that world. Uh, also, the future of internet is all about regulatory standards regarding data exchange. And, and there, the US,
0: the European Union, China have a critical mass, but the UK doesn't. Fabrice, let's let's just start with some some facts about investment here. The UK is attracting nearly a third of all venture capital investment in Europe. That's roughly twice as much as Germany and France combined. And this isn't all just going to fintech. Indeed, fintech venture investment was actually down last year. The hot areas of growth last year were in robotics, security, semiconductors, gaming and food. Among the biggest beneficiaries uh, uh, in those areas were UK startups. Or consider all the investment uh, into the U.K. by global technology firms. When Google wanted to buy the global leader in artificial intelligence, where did it go? It came to London to buy DeepMind, the tech firm described as the Apollo project of AI.
1: So, Marvin, the U.K. had a good run as a member of the European Union. But it is my understanding that the Apple and Googles of this world have been resizing the UK presence to the size of the UK market, while they have upsized the Dublin presence, for instance, to the size of the European market. That doesn't mean no growth for the UK, but it means less growth and missed opportunities. Also think about some of the funds that were used to set up some of the startups or the projects you mentioned, they came from European Investment Bank, for instance, or other European uh, funding institutions. That will stop, that will dry out. So uh, will post-Brexit UK still be such
0: an interesting place to invest? I I think it it, it is, and I think there are two important facts that help explain uh, this. Um, First, most of these UK uh, tech firms are, are homegrown. Um, The second is that um, both the UK firms and the um, international tech companies are just as likely to locate in Cambridge as they are in London. These aren't firms just looking for European office spaces or to populate their local operations uh, in the Apple and Google cases. They're looking for really difficult to find labor. And just as Silicon Valley grew up around Stanford and UC Berkeley. UK technology is growing out of the UK's top universities, and that's just not gonna change with Brexit. If you look at the global rankings of universities, the UK is a clear standout. Three of the top 10 universities globally, including the number one, are all in the UK. The rest are all American. No EU universities even crack the top 25 global universities.
1: But as you say, Marvin, that won't change with Brexit. But you seem to imply that Brexit is facilitating
0: something here. I don't see it. Well, so look, as I discussed um, with our colleague Andreas Kolbe in uh, episode 11 of The Flipside and wrote about in uh, Rethinking Emerging Markets, Fables of the Reconstruction, I do believe that the era of outsourced, globalized production is coming to an end, um, and this is due to technological progress. We're instead moving to a world of mass customization that can only be achieved with local, automated production. The winners in that world are going to be the rich demand centers, where production is likely to relocate, and the technology leaders that can develop that customized automation. The UK is a winner in both those dimensions. It is an important global demand center and tech leader. Let me just give you a a good example of, uh, of this. The UK online grocery company, Ocado. When Amazon announced that it was buying Whole Foods and moving into online grocery delivery, it triggered panic among global grocers, but not at Ocado. They not only didn't panic, they rapidly closed uh, eight joint ventures with grocery partners around the world to provide their world-leading AI and robotics technology to fulfill these complex customized grocery orders in a cost-effective manner. Marvin,
1: that's a great example, but it does cut both ways. If technology allows production to relocate easier to uh, the demand centers, then the production buildup in the UK that was meant to export to the single market will move even faster. That's a negative shock, right? In fact, I thought that that was one of your concerns uh, in your rethinking emerging markets piece, uh, when you say that technology leaders that are small, open economies, just like the UK, are at risk from these trends towards localization. And still, I don't see how this would be any different without Brexit. Why
0: is Brexit facilitating any of this? Okay, so my point about Brexit and technological change was that at worst it may be providing an offset to the... uh, uh, brexit downside that the consensus hasn't accounted for in judging its long-term effects But I also do think that there's a a possibility that brexit may facilitate these technological uh, ad- Advantages um, this is really all about Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction um, one of the greatest stumbling blocks to technological progress is that existing institutional structures and vested interests stand in the way of that progress. Brexit, precisely because it is disrupting the UK's institutional relationships with its largest trading partner, is forcing the creative destruction necessary for the UK to achieve its potential as a global technology leader. That effectively turns Brexit into a competitive advantage for the UK relative to its peers that aren't facing that same forced destruction. So yes, in the short run, it's going to be painful. But in the long run, it's, I think, very possible UK productivity and income may be higher than without Brexit as a result.
1: That's a very interesting point, Marvin, and I'd love to continue, but I'm afraid we're running out of time. On behalf of Barclays, I'd like to thank our audience for joining. And thank you, Marvin, for another engaging debate. Make sure thank to subscribe you. to The Flipside uh, to receive more conversations like this. Also, clients can read the full Rethinking Emerging Market piece, uh, and as well as the Trade Tradeoffs uh, report series on Barclays Live. That's all
0: for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at Barclays.com/ib.